pray together. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, illumine the text of Scripture today very clearly because we need it so badly. We live in a world with so much sin, and the problem isn't just on the outside, the problem is on the inside. And we long to be free, we long to know how to be able to wage war against the sins that create so much destruction and havoc. So Lord, I pray today that you would use your word to uncover, unpeel, and reveal the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. We, we need this because we want to be free, that we might experience all the fullness of what it means to be your followers. So Lord, I pray that you'd use your word today to do what only it can do, to bring life, to bring clarity, to bring godliness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a child, one of my favorite television shows was a black and white program. It ran in the mornings before I would get on the school bus. And many of you will be familiar with this classic TV program. All I need to do is say a very familiar line from this TV show, and it goes like this. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty hi-ho silver, the Lone Ranger, right? How many of you know this great and classic show? was wonderful. On the one hand, you have this beautiful white horse that was always faster than all the bad guy horses, right? You had a trusty companion named Tonto who called the Lone Ranger Kimasabi. Remember this? And, and, and Tonto, in his broken English, uh, always had just fabulous ideas that the Lone Ranger would embrace. Great, Tonto. Let's go do that. The little ranger um, fired silver bullets. Crazy, though. He never actually wounded anybody. Because he didn't shoot to kill. He didn't even shoot to wound. No, he shot to disarm. I mean, he was so highly skilled in his abilities, he could actually shoot the guns out of people's hands. Amazing, right? The lone ranger always spoke with perfect grammar, even though he was... Part of the Texas Rangers. <laughs> the emails have already started. He, surprisingly, he was never captured during a program. For the entire program, always got loose somehow. And was always victorious over the forces of evil. I love this show because the good guys wore white hats, the bad guys wore black hats. It was always clear. Good always won, evil always lost. The battle lines were clear. The Lone Ranger always got his man, at least by the end of the last commercial break. But then it was time to get on the school bus, and everything changed. The good guys didn't wear color-coded hats of white, or the black guys, the black-colored hats weren't all that clear in terms of who was good and who was bad. There were a lot of issues every day that were left unresolved, unlike in the Lone Ranger's world. To make matters worse, frankly, I wasn't sure whether I should wear a white hat or a black hat some days. Some days I did a lot of good, and so I should wear a white hat. But other days, yeah, not so much. Probably more of a dark hat kind of a day. 
didn't take long to learn as a kid that the world of the Lone Ranger wasn't all that realistic. And the battle for good and evil was actually not on the outside. It rea- and the reality was the battle for good and evil was actually waging on the inside of my soul. I came to realize that, that I was capable of wearing a white hat one moment with all my good deeds, and then the very next putting on a black hat and being very evil. I was struggling, although I didn't have the categories for it at the time, but now, knowing now, I was struggling with the problem of indwelling sin. What I came to realize is that there was evil in my heart, and sometimes I didn't know how to stop it, let alone disarm it, or even kill it. No idea. What we're talking about over the next five weeks is the subject of the mortification of sin. John Owen, a 17th century Puritan pastor and theologian, wrote the signature work on the matter of the mortification of sin. He preached a series of sermons that was put into a book form in 1685. It's a fabulous book. It's got complicated English. And that's why Brian Hedges has served the church well by giving us a a more readable version of what it means to kill sin. In Owen's book, he came up with this very famous line that We've quoted often as our, in our ramp up to this um, series we're calling Live 12, and it's this. It is be killing sin or it will be killing you. So kill sin or it will kill you. And the vision for what we want to see happen over the next five weeks is to talk about a very relevant subject, a very practical subject, and then have you dive into that with small groups. We want you to engage with some new people, to be able to get connected, and then also to be able to um, see you experience some level of freedom as you take seriously this call to mortify sin. And then even beyond that, our vision is for you to get free so that then you can help others be free. In fact, in September, Pastor Andrew Rogers, our new pastor of Soul Care, will be launching some, some training sessions and biblical counseling. And the beautiful thing that we want to see happen is for you to get connected, to get deep, get free, and then get trained so you can help other people get free as well. But the The problem is you can't help others until you're free yourself. And so that's what we want to help you do in the next four to five weeks. We'll be looking at the following subjects. Today we're talking about the lines of the battle, kind of laying out the topography of this um, issue that we're dealing with. Next week we'll talk about the battle on the inside. What's the issue with indwelling sin? Sin inside the heart. Then next following week after that we'll talk about sin in the crosshairs, how the cross defeats sin. Then, empowered by the Spirit, what's the Spirit's role in all of this? And then our our weapons of warfare. What does the spiritual disciplines have to do with this battle? So we're going to take a good journey as we talk about this issue of how to deal with our sin and how to be able to get free, not from it entirely, entirety, but free from it in the sense that we see sins hold having less and less power over us. As I've thought and prayed over this series, here's the overarching theme that um, I want to see happen in our lives, something maybe even you could repeat to yourself on a regular basis. It goes like this. The battle is within. Daily I must fight. Death comes from sin, killed only by Christ's might. Would you say that with me? The battle is within. Daily I must fight. Death comes from sin, killed only by Christ's might. 
One of the things I've done over the last month as I've been preparing and thinking and praying about this series is just even those first two lines have become something that I've repeated almost every morning when I've gotten out of bed and put my feet on the floor just to be able to say the battle is within and daily I must fight. And really the big idea of our message today is simply to get this idea of a daily battle into the radar, so to speak, of your life for the next week. I want you to realize that every day that you wake up, you enter into a war. The battle is within, and daily I must fight. So this morning we're going to look at the context of this battle. We're going to look first at the starting point, justification, then secondly looking at the end point, that being glorification, and then finally talk about what sanctification is. That's where we live right now. And so I want to set the context for what we're going to be studying over the next number of weeks. So if you look at verses 1 to 3, you'll see the framework of what we're talking about here. And it all starts with this concept or this idea of what it means to be in Christ. Look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In these first few verses, we we see the dynamic, the issue, the reality of what it means to be in Christ identified. If you saw that or heard it in the latter part of verse 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What we're talking about here from a theological standpoint is the idea of justification. And what justification is, is the legal declaration that God makes over His children by which you are forgiven, made righteous through the work of Jesus Christ. It's the legal declaration that God puts over a lost person who then becomes His child. God declares over this person, you are forgiven, you are made righteous. According to the Bible, the reason that God has to do that in the first place is because the problem is not just what we do. The problem with our world and the problem even with our own hearts is the issue of sin. And it's a common problem that we all share. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So there's some sermon series that have um, levels of application depending upon where you're at in life. We talked the last couple of weeks about the whole dynamic of pain and, and challenges in terms of suffering. And some of you may not entirely relate to that. But when it comes to this sermon series, we're talking about the issue of sin. And all of us can relate to that. Because the problem in our world and the problem in our lives is all the same thing. And that is this common relationship that we all have with the problem of indwelling sin. Every human being shares this common battle. It is a part of who we are. So the good news of the Bible is that God has made it possible for people to be forgiven of both their external and internal rebellion against God's holiness. And God's holiness is revealed through His law, His rules. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to the earth, He lived a perfect life, He died on the cross, He rose again from the dead, For this reason, so that he could pay the just demands of God's holiness for those who sinned. 
The good news is that for those who acknowledge their sin, the Bible calls that repentance, we, we, or confession rather, we confess our sins. Repent mean we turn from our sin and we turn to God. For those who put their faith in Jesus, that God does something amazing. He counts Jesus' death as a sufficient payment for those who receive Christ by faith. And when that happens, there's a change of status. They once were God's enemies, now they're his friends. They weren't once were outside of God's family, now they're inside of God's family. And God declares over them a new position. They're now described as being in Christ. John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this in Christ thing is something that God has done. It's an illegal declaration in the courtroom of God's justice. He takes those who put their faith in Jesus. He declares over them, your sins have been paid for. You are now in Christ. And the effect of this is that when the Bible talks about them, when it says that Christ died, it's as though they died. When he rose again, it's as though they rose again. There's a vicarious relationship with the person who receives Christ and what Christ has done. His death becomes their death. His life becomes their life. That's why Colossians 3 says things like this in verse 3. For you have died. Well, how did I die? Oh, I died in Christ. He says, and your life is hidden in Christ. It's in Christ now. Your life is hidden in Christ. A new identity. That's why the Bible also says, Colossians 3.1, if you have been raised with Christ. Well, how was I raised with Christ? Well, spiritually, when Jesus rose, I share in his victory. To be in Christ then, or to be with Christ, means that you have been forgiven through Jesus. That he did what you could never do. Essentially, this is what the gospel is, this is what it means to be a Christian, it's what it means to be born again. And what you need to know this morning is this is the starting point of how you deal with sin. A person begins to deal with sin by first dealing with the fundamental problem of their, of their relationship with their God. Since sin separates people from God, it is only through repentance and faith in Jesus that a person can have a relationship with God in the first place and then begin to battle with sin. If you don't take care of the first thing, that is your fundamental relationship problem between you and God, there is no hope for you to deal with ongoing daily sin. You see, there must be this in Christ dynamic for the battle to even begin. We have to start here. And the reason is that some people mistakenly try to defeat sin in their own strength. They try to modify their behavior. They try and do things to make themselves stop sinning. But the reality is they're powerless to stop themselves from sinning they need to literally have a rebirth christ needs to take over to take control trying to mortify their sin trying to control their sin to diminish its power without first being converted will never ever work so listen to me those of you who are still trying to figure out the claims of christianity and who if you haven't truly been born again you've not really ever received christ as your savior listen to me you will never be able to deal with your sin ever You may be able to deal with temporarily through behavior modification or something else, but the fundamental reality is that you can't change the desires of your heart. Only God can. And until you deal with that issue, there is no hope to mortify sin. It needs to start with being in Christ. Here's how Hedges puts it in the opening chapter of his book. The most important thing to understand in this first chapter is this. Before you can kill sin, you have to look to the Lord who was lifted up on the cross for you. 
You cannot fight sin unless you have found rest in the inexhaustible sufficiency of the doing and the dying of Jesus Christ in your place. You cannot mortify sin unless that sin has been already nailed to the cross of Christ. There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. So killing sin starts with being in Christ. One of my hopes, one of my prayers, is that over the next number of weeks, there will be people who come to the conclusion, you know what, I need to be in Christ. I've tried all these other things to try and deal with my sin. It's not worked. And the reason it's not working is because you are not genuinely converted. And that's where it begins, with being in Christ. So knowing where it starts is helpful. But what you also need to know is kind of where it ends. The battle we face in this lifetime, wonderfully, the Bible tells us, is not going to continue forever. There is more to life than this struggle. There is coming a day when our sin will be ended once and for all. And that's called glorification. It is what is coming next. So there is this justification, the starting of the relationship with God, the declaring of one being righteous, brought into God's family. At the end of the day, there's glorification, where God takes everything that's been broken and marred by sin, and He recreates everything. The, the, The mission of God is to redeem the earth and its inhabitants from the presence and the power of sin. As we'll look at next week, even after you receive Christ, there's still the remaining indwelling presence of sin. While you've been declared legally righteous and, and legally justified in God's presence, there's still an ongoing reality of struggle with sin. The Bible often calls it the flesh. Some translations call it the sin nature. It's what it relates to our physical existence. And there will come a day when Jesus returns and He raises the dead back to life and He gives all of us glorified, resurrected bodies just like His. On that day, we will be just like Him. And He's called the first fruits because He's the first one to receive this resurrected body just like you will receive. I mean, just imagine what that's going to be like. I mean, think of it. If you're a parent, no more having to correct kids anymore. No one, te- no one telling. I mean, simple things like wash your hands. It's done. They know that forever, right? I mean, part of the glory of heaven. Think all the time we're going to have. You know, you want to instruct your kids and tell them what to do. Think parents who have adult children and you spend some time with them and you come away and you're like, oh, I hope that's going okay. No more worrying about that kind of stuff. No more wrestling with your own sins. No more temptations. No more sermons on sin. Don't say amen. No, you know, (laughs) there's no more. It's all gone. Jesus is taking all of it away. The earth is, is perfect. You are perfect. And you're in a body that is glorified, completely free from the effects of sin. Christ comes in Revelation 20. He takes the devil and all of his minions and casts them into the lake of fire. And the beauty of this moment is that Jesus removes every remaining presence of sin and makes you completely and eternally like Him. Just think of it. There's not even the possibility of you doing anything with an impure motive. I mean, just think of how glorious heaven is going to be in that respect. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Wow. For we shall see Him as He is. Or take 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and 52. 
text says, Behold, I, sh- I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And whenever I hear that verse, I always have this little bit of a smile in the back of my mind because in my church growing up, in wonderful, beautiful letters on the wall, this verse was plastered on the, in the nursery, right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's a little bit of a Baptist humor. And the verse is horribly taken out of context. It has, has nothing to do with clean diapers, right? It has everything to do with the remaining presence of sin being completely removed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trump will sound, the dead will be raised, and we shall be changed. This is what's coming, friends. So the battle, the struggle, the wrestling that we're talking about, this will not be forever. And this idea of glorification is important because it shows that God's ultimate goal of redemption is your absolute sinless perfection. He's going to accomplish that goal, and there will be a day when you will be 100% perfect, not only legally, but practically. Just think of that. You get up in the new kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, and everything you do all day long is absolutely righteous. Wow. Explains, secondly, glorification explains how God will accomplish that goal. He's the one that's going to do it. In the same way that He was the one that did the declaration of justification, He's the one who will do the accomplishment of glorification. God does them both. And it also highlights what's in the middle. That between justification and glorification is our present earthly struggle with sin. So this legal declaration of righteousness, justification, starts the process. It's, it, it's where all of this struggle with sin begins. Glorification is where it ends. And in the meantime, we embrace this realm called sanctification. Between justification and glorification is what is often called progressive sanctification. That's where we live right now. Sanctification means this. Wayne Grudem in his book on systematic theology has this definition. He defines sanctification as a progressive work of God. Excuse me. A progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Let me read that again. A progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. The definition is really important. Let's pick it apart. First of all, it's a progressive work, which means that there are seasons of success, but there are also seasons of struggle and there are seasons of failure. That your spiritual growth into maturity looks more like the stock market's Dow Jones industrial average than it does the flight plan of a plane taking off. It means that there are moments of great success and then moments of failure. It means that none of us are absolutely sanctified. We're all in the process. It's a progressive work. A progressive work of God and man. Unlike justification, which is completely a work of God, and glorification, which is completely a work of God, progressive sanctification involves the cooperating work, cooperating work of us 
in regards to the supply of resources that God has given. So it's something that God does, but something we cooperate with, something we are actively engaged in. Sanctification involves our direct activity and cooperation. So again, a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin. So part of the definition of sanctification means that there's a double-sided coin to this dynamic of sanctification. On the one hand, we're more and more free from sin. That's mortification, where we're making sin's control less and less significant in our lives. Sin has less hold, less um, power over us. And on the other hand... We become more and more like Christ, the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So sanctification means that while sin is getting less and less significant in my life, it has less power, less hold on me. I'm growing more and more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And this definition is important in that it says in our actual lives. So you got to understand that Justification and glorification are a part of God's plan of salvation, but so is progressive sanctification. It's all part of God's plan. In other words, the whole plan of redemption is not just to save you so you know where you're going to go when you die. The whole plan of salvation is to save you so you know where you're going to go when you're going to die so that you can live righteously and become like Jesus today. So the beauty of salvation is not just that you have security of what happens the moment after you move from this life into the next. The beauty of Christianity and the essence of salvation is that you are becoming more and more like Jesus every single day. And you know it's not you, it's Him working in and through you. It is the glory that you can change your life through Christ today. And everything about you can be remarkably different as God puts a new heart, a new soul a new longing within you that you would never have on your own. So look at Colossians 3.5. After the justification in verses 1 and 2 and 3, and the glorification in verse 4, we see sanctification in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists some things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So this command of put these things to death is seen in light of this justification and this glorification. In other words, and we see, we'll see this play out in a moment in Romans chapter 8 as well, when, when you really understand what your position is in Christ, when you really understand what God is promising you in your future, there will be an ongoing battle to put sin to death. The new birth means that now God has placed within you a new love for God and a hatred for sin. Oh, sure, sin is still attractive, but fundamentally something is altered in your soul. It is that you want to honor and love Christ. He he is your treasure. And because of that, there is a renewed... not, Not a renewed. There is a new longing to be able to put sin to death. And it becomes very practical Very specific, very tangible in your life. Take your Bible, go to Romans chapter 8. Paul uses the same argument, same sort of model in Romans 8, 9 to 13, talking about one's positional righteousness, where they are, and then even also this glorification piece, and then dials into, in light of these two things, therefore do this. And The point I'm trying to make here is if you really understand what God has done for you in Christ through justification and you understand the beauty of what's coming in glorification, then that ought to show up in the way in which you put sin to death. 
The reverse also being true, if you could care less about putting sin to death, then the question is, have you really experienced justification at all? Paul says this in Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are not debtors. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, the idea that's expressed here is that there's a contrast. You live by the flesh, that equals death. You live by the Spirit, that equals life. So what does it mean to live by the Spirit? It essentially is a life in which you put to death the deeds of the body. Those are are linked together. You put to death the deeds of the body, the Spirit takes over, Spirit takes control. And for that matter, this spirit dynamic, putting death to the deeds of the body, living in the spirit, is proof that you are living by the spirit, that you are spiritually alive, that you are in fact not dead. And by putting to death the deeds of the body, and by growing more and more into the likeness of Christ, you give evidence that what you believe is in fact real. This is incredibly assuring, giving your heart confidence that I really am converted because I see sin having less and less hold on me and I see the growing likeness of Christ being formed in me. Greater assurance is the mortification of sin and what's called the vivification of becoming like Christ. Greater assurance comes from putting to death the deeds of the body and embracing Christ's likeness than some date in the front of your Bible. Assurance doesn't come from some decision you made in the past. Assurance comes from a present living reality that I am a changed person and ever growing in the likeness of Jesus. doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly, but it does mean that fundamentally you are a different person because of the work of Jesus. If I could be king for a day and kind of rewrite some things in the evangelical of understanding of Christianity, I would rewrite our understanding of assurance as a point-in-time decision. Instead, would rewrite assurance as understanding who and what Christ is and the fact that I am being made more and more into the likeness of His image. The point of all of this, friends, is this. Putting to death the deeds of the body will increase your assurance. It will prove to your own soul that you are real. More so than any memory of what you've done in the past. Putting to death the deeds of the body is supposed to be the normal and natural activity of those who live by the Spirit. So let me just pause here and ask you, is this, is this how you think? Is this how you live? One of the many desires that I have for this series is to recalibrate your understanding of what your goal should be every single day of your life if you're a follower of Jesus. I want to shift your thinking and, and, get it, and get this idea of putting sin to death back into the place of where I think it should be in your life. The, the enemy doesn't want you to take sin seriously. He, he wants you to coast. He wants you to let down your guard. He wants you to find any number of excuses as, why you, as to why you don't need to approach this subject with blood earnestness. 
C.S. Lewis wrote a great little book called The Screwtape Letters, and in that book he records fictitiously the conversation between a, 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 an Uncle Screwtape who is a demon who's mentoring a young demon in how to tempt Christians. He puts these words into Uncle Screwtape's mouth. He says, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. See, the enemy wants for us to think that there's no issue that we really need to think about this seriously. And yet the Apostle Peter with the backdrop of God's mercy, tells us that there's a war going on in the soul. Listen to 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he says this in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. What I want you to see today, friends, is that this is, there's a war. These, these things war against the soul. Just think of some of the things that Paul listed in Colossians 3. Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, covetousness. I mean, come on, you, you've seen what these things do in people's lives. You know what they do to relationships and marriages and churches and culture. In fact, candidly, one of the most challenging things about being involved in pastoral ministry is that you get a front row seat to the destruction that sin causes. I mean, you're close enough, you can smell the putrid odor of broken covenants, of, of destroyed trust, of pathological selfishness and self-destroying addictions. And the problem is, and frankly it makes it even worse, that we know that sin is bad. Nobody came here this morning and is going to leave going, I didn't know sin was bad. That's helpful to know. No one's going to think that. Because our problem is not a lack of knowledge. Our issue is negligence. We know what sin is. We, if we're honest, just... We don't take it seriously enough. Or we take it seriously only when we feel the real and immediate consequences. You know, someone doesn't take sin seriously until they're trapped in it, until the putrid stench of it is overwhelming them and others, or until it's cost a person dearly. It's amazing how seriously a person can take their sin after it has created so much damage. Sin needs to be taken seriously years earlier. So the heart behind what I'm trying to say today, the heart behind this message, is to simply raise your awareness level when it comes to the priority of battling sin. I want you to realize that every day that you wake up, you're in a war for your soul. You're in a battle. And my question is, do you take it that seriously? Do you approach it as, look, I need to be killing sin or it will be killing me? So... Finally, then, what does it mean? What does it mean to kill sin? Part of the challenge with this is our wording, because the word kill in English sounds so definitive. You don't kind of kill something. It's either dead or it isn't. So when Paul says, put it to death, what, what does that mean? It's been a, a struggle of mine throughout the years to 
What, what does it mean to put something to death? Because even when I, I fight sin, the problem is, is it's still there. It's not like it's ever totally gone. So what does it mean to put sin to death? Let me give you some things in terms of what it means. First and foremost, it means an intentional weakening. An intentional weakening. When we were studying the book of Colossians in 2008, I stumbled across something that was really helpful for my own soul. Something that was just has really impacted me personally. I was looking at this phrase, put to death, and trying to figure out what it meant in the original language. And while looking at the parsing of it and the, the tense of it was helpful, it's an aorist active imperative, it's a command, it's a completed act, I have to continually do it, that was helpful at one level. But the meaning of the word was even more helpful. It's the word, Greek word, nekru. And it was used by physicians to, to denote atrophy of the body that occurred through some level of sickness. And I was told by a physician after our first service that the form of the word necru or necra is still even used in medical language and terminology even today to describe body tissues that is that are um, hindered from receiving blood flow. Atrophy is really helpful in terms of a, a definition. You know what atrophy is, right? So you have a limb, an arm, but because of something that's gone wrong, illness or uh, something that's happened, you don't use the arm, and after a while it becomes atrophied. The muscle, because of disuse, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so therefore it's not as strong, it's not as useful. You still have the arm, but its strength is diminished. And when I understood that in light of the idea of put sin to death, that made a lot of sense. It was really helpful because compare sin to an arm. It's still going to be there, but it doesn't have to be as strong. See, the, the problem is that when we start to use our muscles, they get stronger. That's what weightlifting and training is all about. You, 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 you use the muscle, it gets stronger, you want to lift more weights. And the key, in terms of what it means to mortify the flesh, to put it to death, is the intentional weakening. You starve the things that create strength. You don't use it. You intentionally choose to make it weak. So atrophy is an important thing to, to think through. If, if you don't use your muscles, they're not going to be as strong. That's why when you do something really strenuous, you wake up the next morning and you're like really sore, it's a good sign. Hey, I probably need to work out a little bit more, use my muscles or something. I, I feel that way this morning, honestly. I have a bunch of sores all over my body. Yesterday I took my kids to the Monon Center and they introduced me to this this ride called the Flow Rider. You know what that is? Any of you kids know what that is? That many? Let me explain to you. All right, you know what that is? So it's imagine like a, you know, a boogie board. So you go on this this little ramp thing, and it's got this water that's shooting at you like, I don't know, like 600 miles an hour or something, and it's just flying at your face. And you can literally, you're stationary, but it's like you're surfing, right? And all these little kids are doing it, and my kids love throwing me in scenarios that they, they think are going to, you know, create lots of fun for them. So, Dad, you got to try this. So I, so I did it, and... I jumped down the thing, and it's not made for guys who are six foot five. My feet are like off, almost off the end, you know, and, and this water's flying in my face. And then a, a guy who's up front, a lifeguard, is coaching me on what I should do. And he's like, all right, now go on your chest and put your arms out. So I'm doing this, everything. And this, this water's just flying at me, right? And he's like, okay, do a barrel roll. I'm like, a what? A barrel roll. So what you do is you grab the, the surfboard, and you roll on your back while this water is trying to push you over. And you have to roll over all the way back on the slide as fast as you can, or it'll hurl you to the back wall, right? Bam, I mean, it hurts. It hurts. And, and so after not doing it once very well, I got down the second time, and I did, I did three barrel rolls in a row. Yes. 
Yes, trying to mortify pride in my life. Don't clap, don't clap, don't clap. So any of you fellows who are over 40, I challenge you, try and do three barrel rolls at the Flow Rider, at the Manon Center. We'll talk, and here's the deal. The next morning, I promise you, you will wake up more sore you can possibly imagine, and it will be a reminder, I need to hit the gym, right? Now, what, what is all of that's going on? It's the atrophy of the muscles. You don't use them like that, so therefore you get really sore. Here's the thing God wants us to understand with the use of this idea of put sin to death. It means this. If you don't exercise the muscle of sin, it will grow weaker and weaker and weaker. But the reverse is also true, and here's the warning. You begin to exercise that muscle, and after a while it won't be enough to lift 10-pound weights. You're going to want to lift 20 and 30 and 40. And the more you lift, the more you exercise, the stronger that muscle is, the greater it controls you. The idea, what is killing sin? It is intentionally weakening the flesh. So let me ask you, so what's in your life right now that's feeding the beast? What sinful weights are you lifting? What, what are you doing to intentionally weaken sin's strength in your life? Colossians 3 warns us, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So it involves an intentional weakening. Here's the second thing, it involves gradual progress. There's actually hope in this. A lot of hope, because sanctification and mortification are linked, and if sanctification is progressive, so is mortification. Putting sin to death, then, is the gradual weakening of sin's power in the life of, of believers. Now, sometimes sanctification or mortification happens quickly and intensely, but more often than not, more often than not, it is a slow and gradual work as we replace bad desires with good desires, bad actions with good habits, bad thoughts with good thoughts. And sometimes, friends, this takes a while. There are some temptations that you will battle for the rest of your life. But the hope of mortification is that they will become easier and easier. It will become easier and easier to win the battle as you develop a track record of God-oriented success. And some of you need to be patient and realize that you've fed the beast. If you imagine two accounts, you have fed the beast with an enormous amount of practice. And it is ridiculous to think that you could just repent and memorize three verses and you're going to be in the clear. It means for the rest of your life, every single day, you need to put daily God-oriented thoughts and develop an account on the other side that eclipses all of the bad things that are on the other side. Meaning you've developed habits and patterns and thinking, and now you need to develop new habits and new practices and new patterns. And this is a gradual process. So don't be discouraged if it takes a while. You've been sinning for a while. It's going to take you a while to become righteous and put off the bad habits. It's a gradual process. Third, mortification, killing sin, involves external and internal activity. It's not just what we do on the outside, and certainly that's important. God is interested in our changing behaviors. He's interested in our obedience. But that's not all that we need to be concerned about. Putting sin to death must get to the heart. It must get to the desire, to the motive level. In fact, really, the only way to fully mortify a sin, the only way to kill it is to kill it at its roots, at the motive and desire and drive level. We have to starve the flesh, starve the wrong motive, starve the wrong evil desires, and do that not only by not acting on what is sinful, but also by applying the purifying antidote of the spiritual disciplines through the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to add all of the positive things into your soul that help you to think right, 
to desire the right things. That's where the Word comes in. That's where prayer comes in. That's where the community of believers come in. That's where what it means to sing together, to be a part of the body of Christ. All these things are beautiful additions that serve to purify your mind and heart and thereby addressing not just the things that you do, but also the very things that you want. So we must deal with outside and inside, external and internal motivations. And finally, and this is the main thought, that I want you to realize that mortification is a daily and serious battle. Mortification is not an easy task because it is so incredibly daily. It requires a daily vigilance. Owen says this, The life, vigor, and comfort of our spiritual life depend much on the mortification of sin. He says those who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin, meaning justification, ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling presence of sin. Meaning every single day, this is what God has called us to. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? It means that every day you wake up and say, I'm in a battle, it's a war, and I'm going to fight to have sin control me less and Jesus control me more. It is that simple and yet that challenging. Owen says, do make it your daily work. Always be at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. There is not the best saint in the world. But if he should give over this duty, meaning if he stops, would fall into as many cursed sins as ever did any of his kind. In other words, any of us are capable of horrible, horrible sins. The evil lies within. And therefore, daily, we must fight. So one of the most significant things about this battle is the fact that it's something you must do every single day. And my question is simply this. Is that how you view the Christian life? Is that how you approach every day? Do you take sin seriously? Do you realize the importance of what it means to kill sin? You must be killing sin or it will be killing you. The battle is within. So daily I must fight. Death comes from sin. We've seen it, haven't we? It's killed only by Christ's might. College Park, you've got to fight. You've got to fight. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you to apply this to our hearts in ways that um, are deep and personal and real. We need you to peel back the layers of self-deception and apathy that would cause us even this moment to say, I'm, I'm I'm not going there. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ today who know the reality of sin. They they know it, but I pray there'd be a greater urgency for them. A sense of tomorrow when I wake up, even this afternoon, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight. I want to become like Jesus. While we're in this quiet moment here, College Park, as we just have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, you may be here today and you don't know... Christ is your Savior, the reality is that you are not in Christ. And my hope, 
perhaps even in this moment or maybe this afternoon, that you would just pour out your heart and say, Lord, I, I need you and I want to give my heart and life to you and have you change me from the inside out. It may be today that your real problem is not what you do. Your real problem is who you are. And in Christ, God can make you new. For those of you who know the Lord as your Savior, you know Christ, you consider yourself a Christian, there may be an area in which you've stopped fighting, maybe some dynamic of your soul that you would just say today, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to help me to take seriously the battle with blank. may have given in, may have failed so many times that you've thought, this is who I am, I can't do anything more. And that today you would just renew your faith-filled commitment to say, Lord, I'm going to fight. You helping me, I'm going to fight every single day. And today maybe you just need to renew that pledge to say, I need to take this more seriously than I am. Listen, afterwards, there'll be some folks up here at the front, our prayer team, who'd love to pray with you. If something's going on in your soul, they're here to help you, pray for you, encourage you. So, Father, I, um, I pray now that you would give us an urgency as we fight sin every single day. Help us to wake up tomorrow with this sense of God today. I've got a battle, it's within me. And every single day I'm going to fight this fight. Thank you that you can make us more like your son. And we pray you'd help us to win this battle. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming today.